I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ida Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. I actually reversed that for the first time ever. Common good and common sense meet. I'm sorry, my memory failed me. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a big show for you. As always, we're starting with charges brought against the leaker we discussed last week. Uh, we have continue, we're continuing to, uh, I think, grapple with the revelations of the leaks about the war in Ukraine, and Inez is going to give us an update on that. Uh, the House Republicans seem to be trying to defund wokeness. There's some updates in that battle that Ben is going to bring us. Um, Josh is going to talk to us about how corporate America really is the enemy in light of everything that's going on with Bud Light, I guess no pun intended um, on that point. And I'm going to talk about Elon Musk's interview with Tucker Carlson in which he discussed some uh, fairly big developments in the world of artificial intelligence and generative AI. So with that, I'm going to kick it over to you, Ines. Sure. And I, I think the the top story globally here, um, perhaps not even in the US, is that the, uh, the leaker, Jack Tahara, uh, has been charged with um, the initial counts. Now, there are going to be a bunch more. This is every document that he leaked is a separate count. And each document uh, has, whole, uh, for this kind of charge, which is unauthorized transmission and retention of classified documents, has a, a penalty of up to a sentence of up to 10 years. So, you know, we're talking thousands of years in jail for the for uh, potentially um, as, as a consequence of, of leaking these documents. Um, Another one of the questions that has been answered recently um, coming off of last week, uh, he, he was on active duty and uh, he did have a top secret security clearance. Um, so he's 21. He had that that uh, security clearance and he was actually able he was allowed to have access to this level of documents, although, of course, you're not supposed to be just, you know, it's, it's, having uh, that kind of clearance is not supposed to just open the entire world of, of um, classified documents to you. Right. You have to have a specific reason and a reason to know um, what you're pulling. So I think one of the stories here, if we're going to talk about the leaker at all, and I'll get to the framing of this and, and what I think is important in terms of how the media has treated this. But um, if for a moment we're going to talk about the leaker at all, um, I think we do have to talk about the fact that this was not James Bond level stuff, right? Um, you have this 21-year-old who has been searching for and downloading documents that he had no work reason to access, uh, printing off those documents, taking pictures with a camera, um, right? And he was doing this for an entire year before and posting the, these documents to the Discord chat. Um, he was doing this for an entire year. So obviously there is a problem with security. These kinds of documents that are actually legitimately, when you read them, of course, you see why they are uh, very highly classified. Uh, I do think it points to a larger problem um, with our national security state and overclassification. I mean, we classify everything. Um, it makes it very, very difficult to actually have uh, the kind of stringent protocols for actual important, very like rightly classified, top secret classified documents because there are so many of them um, and so many people have access because so many things are classified that it becomes very difficult. And this is sort of the result of that. It, it makes it, um, you know, 
it, it makes it very easy for somebody who is not, you know, any kind of high level spy, but just an ordinary person um, who has access, one of the, the many thousands of people who do have this kind of access uh, to to act, to um, go ahead and, and download onto their work computer, right, uh, these kinds of documents and, and potentially leak them. Uh, so this, this really does call into question, of course, the competency of the national security state and being able to actually keep anything classified. So that's sort of bracket that for a moment. Um, and then we can talk about how the the media has covered this, right? Obviously, it is important, you know, what this guy's motivations are. It, it appears that basically the motivation was to look cool to his Discord friends. Um, there doesn't seem at this point that he had uh, any like foreign ties or that he had some larger political purpose or that he was a whistleblower in that sense or um, that, that this appears to be more of of some kid who wanted to show highly classified documents to his Discord chat, right, with with a, a bunch of teenagers and just over that age. Um, so that goes to the competence, but the fact that the media has covered the leaker and this story so extensively, rather than covering, um, you know, there has been a lot of downplaying of, of the information that's actually in these documents, just to rattle off a few, and I'm sure uh, Ben, Josh, and Emily will add to this, but uh, the fact that we do have advisors on the ground in Ukraine, the fact that um, Zelensky is willing to strike targets in Russia if, if he had access to long-range missiles, um, that would, that sure casts a, 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 you know, makes sense that we are having this debate about offensive versus defensive weapons several months ago that I think on this podcast and elsewhere, we kind of said, what what is, you know, what's the importance of weapons are weapons, right? Um, why is this distinction so important? Well, now we know uh, why that distinction is so important, because our intelligence services believe that that's a red line for China getting involved on the other side of this war. So um, there, there's also the matter of this down plane in Belarus, how much control uh, Zelensky has over or over some of the the forces in allegedly in his command. These are all open questions, um, and and so instead of really digging into these stories, and by the way, there are more stories coming because the Washington Post has another potentially fifty documents. Whether they'll actually publish the information in those documents is an open question. But there are more documents out there. We've only seen um, a certain percentage of the documents that that this kid leaked onto that Discord server. So. Um, all of that to say, we're not having that discussion. We're focused very, very much on the leaker. And in fact, the New York Times and the Washington Post went out of their way um, to find the leaker for for the security state, right? So playing a very different role than, say, the media did during the Pentagon Papers leak. So let's uh, throw all of that out for discussion with one final point. Um, there's also this announcement from the Pentagon that they, they are going to review and change how they deal with private chats on the internet. Um, obviously, this has massive implications for privacy and for the rights of American citizens if if we're going to have the security state trolling through private Internet chats. I think most of us assume that's happening already, but the Pentagon is pretty much openly saying that they're going to be doing that. So the content of the leaks and the process of the leaks remain extremely disturbing. Um, so they're, as Ines said, you break that into two different categories, the, the process of how this information leaked and then what was in the leaks. Um, just to make a really quick point, the media is acting definitely differently than it did with the Pentagon Papers, but even differently than it did with Julian Assange, even differently than it did with Edward Snowden. There's very recent history to compare their treatment of different leaks with, and it doesn't make them look good at all. Um, it makes them look like they're the useful idiots of the national security state that basically tells them what to do. Um, and that's 
pretty much, I think the, the big takeaway from the process part of the leaks, we covered a lot of the content of the leaks last week. I would just commend to everybody, Matt Taibbi's coverage um, of how, how the media and Glenn Greenwald has been doing a lot of really good stuff too, on how the media is reacting to these leaks by basically being aghast that anyone would leak information when in the past, of course, they've been champions of, of leakers. Um, you know, just a good example that it's not necessarily a partisan press so much as it is a uh, partisan if the party is the Pentagon or if the party is power. Um, a great underscoring of that truth, but I'll kick it over to Josh and Ben. Right. So my good buddy, Jordan Schachtel, had a has had a couple of illuminating Substack posts, I think, on this exact topic. And the phrase that Jordan uses is whistleblower ink. Now, whistleblower ink has kind of run to the protection of various whistleblowers in D.C. in the past. People like Assange come to mind, uh, Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning, whatever we want to call that individual, perhaps as well. The fact that this leaker has been immediately, like literally within like 12 to 24 hours, right, probably even sooner than that, was just immediately kind of shunned, denigrated, and blasphemed by what Jordan calls whistleblower ink, I think kind of gives away the game, which is that this person exposed um, a lot of the rot. Which is happening not just in Ukraine, among other many other places as well. I mean, the depths to which the U.S. has been exposed for kind of spying on many of our close allies might be a little kind of viscerally shocking. Nothing that those of us who pay close attention to these matters don't already know. Allies spy on each other all the time, but uh, the data when it comes to Ukraine was pretty crazy. I'm trying to remember the exact statistic um, as far as how many more Ukrainians and Russians have died since this thing started. Um, it, it's like six to seven times if I remember the rough metric or, or something along those lines, but it's not good. I mean, it, it's it's definitely not good. And um, yeah, I, I, I do think that, that, that the fact that the reaction from the media and from Whistleblower Inc. has been this definitely says a ton about the fact that um, this person did expose a lot of the hopeless nature of America's crusade um, in the Donbass and Crimea. And I have other thoughts as well, but I want to save time for Ben. So uh, I'll be brief and make two points. Um, th this is probably a rhetorical question, but but maybe not. You know, at the end of the day, is the leaker's crime here the mishandling of classified information, or is it that he leaked out information that the authorities did not want leaked out. And that looks very damaging for their narratives and the campaigns that they built and the policy that they have overseen. And I think it's quite obvious if you want to talk about the double standard in the leakers here, when the leakers are divulging information that in the past the media and other authorities have liked, those leakers have been cheered as courageous whistleblowers. And in this case, where you see now, and this gets to the other major point, that the media has effectively become a part of the security state. That is why you have the media literally working hand in hand with the intelligence authorities to try and track down this leaker. That is why you have them sifting through the documents and maybe or maybe not divulging some contents within them seemingly in coordination. Uh, it, would, it would appear with the government authorities so all of this gets to a, it's not about leaking in and of itself, it's about what the contents of the leaks are and who the person is doing it. And you know, we can talk about all these other issues of, is there overclassification? And I think we'd probably all agree there's massive overclassification. Why is there massive overclassification? Well, there are probably CYA reasons, and there are also probably other reasons why 
uh, authorities want to hide the ball from us. We've seen game playing with redactions and the other ways in which the authorities use classification to cover for themselves, sometimes for good reasons and oftentimes for bad reasons as well. Um, we can talk about the fact that you know leaking in general, I think we all agree, is illegal and wrong, but that there can also be benefits to the public when we find out that obviously massive malfeasance or wrongdoing or dishonesty from the authorities. So there's lots of different elements to this, but I go back to the two main points of media is now part of the security state. And then is it about leaking or is it about the content of the leaks? And I think the answers speak for themselves to that question. So with that, I'll transition back to myself here on a completely different topic, which is some activity that's come out recently in the House that I saw what I thought was noteworthy. And I wrote a piece about this for Real Clear Investigations this week. Uh, we were able to exclusively obtain these letters drafted by Congressman Jim Banks and several other members of the House who were part of his uh, anti-woke caucus, which was established earlier this year. And they drafted letters to each of the chairs and ranking members of the 12 House Appropriations Subcommittees calling for the defunding of all woke line items, essentially, in 2024 spending bills. Uh, specifically, the language that they use in each of these letters is defunding all woke programs and initiatives that are rooted in discrimination and promote far left ideology in the federal government. And in each of these letters, they cite what they perceive to be some of the most egregiously woke line items in 2023 spending bills, uh, which total, and this is only a small fraction of total spending that they might identify, but total $900 million uh, in items. And so some of the items that they list, for example, are for the commerce and justice departments and related agencies, more than $200 million in spending on programs aimed at increasing race-based hiring and recruitment in STEM. Uh, state foreign operations and other programs, $200 million for the Gender Equity and Equality Action Fund. Many of these funds and programs we've probably never heard of before. Uh, the Interior Environment and Related Agencies Appropriations Act in 2023 called for $108 million for environmental justice activities. And the letters also target language in bills, spending bills in 2023, like, for example, commerce and justice and other agencies claiming that white supremacists and violent anti-government domestic extremists are infiltrating security and law enforcement agencies. A DHS spending bill, an ICE spending bill, calls for ICE to only detain transgender aliens, illegal aliens at facilities with staff who have received LGBTI sensitivity and awareness training and medical personnel with experience delivering hormone therapies. Uh, one more line item in the Energy and Water Development and Other Agencies Act in 2023, the request that the Department of Energy consider social equity and environmental and energy justice in state and community energy programs. Uh, Banks commented on these letters to us, and what he said was, this needs to be a Republican majority that says enough is enough. Speaker Pelosi famously said, show me your budget and I'll tell you your values. This appropriation cycle, Republicans need to show that we value liberty, patriotism, and legal equality, and that we reject dividing Americans based on race, anti-Americanism, radical gender ideology climate hysteria. And I reached out to several ranking members on the Democrat side uh, of these appropriation subcommittees, none of whom responded to my inquiries about what they thought about these letters. But I would point out a few things about this and then open it up to others. Uh, the first is that this kind of tactic would seem to be essentially a federal extension of the DeSantis policy at the state level and the policies that have been adopted by executives and legislators 
in several other states, which is identify the programs that you deem to be detrimental to the American way of life, and then go about trying to defund them, and then ultimately down the road, replace them. So this is sort of the federal House-led initiative to try to follow through on that same sort of process, which obviously makes logical sense. You know, the first thing you do is stop digging, essentially. Uh, I think it's interesting that Banks, in his comment to us, emphasized that essentially the onus is on Republicans to show that this is what we believe in. It wasn't so much a, a criticizing Democrats, but it was a focus on his own conference, which is interesting. Uh, and let's note that in that conference, this anti-woke caucus, again, established a couple of months ago, has 26 members. It's interesting that there's not 200 members on the Republican side. So I think that is telling, and that might explain perhaps you know, some of the impetus behind the statement that he made. And then I'd also note that on the merits, you know, the odds are obviously long that there will ever be some kind of budget agreement to the extent there even is something other than a continuing resolution at some point, not to get wonky into the budget talks. But to the extent there actually is a fiscal year 2024 budget that's agreed upon, you know, who knows if these line items are going to make it into it or not. But if nothing else, this represents an effort to identify the kinds of items that are in our budgets that I think would surprise many Americans. And it also puts Democrats into a potentially uncomfortable position of having to actually defend these line items or that there might be more coverage of these line items. Uh, and that seems like an interesting tactic. So I wonder what you all make of this exercise on the merits and the politics. Sure. Um, this is exactly what the Republican Party should be doing. Um, I'm glad to see that at least some small portion of the House caucus is interested in this. Look, um, it's not the end of the story, even if they got it through, right? Because there's there's a whole lot of the department shall in the budget, right? So there's two halves of this this public funding of the left domestically in America. The first half are all of these um, line items in the budget. The second half is a bunch of things that aren't line items in the budget, but just grants that go out to from from departments, for example. So I, I made this point uh, with regard to education, and and I think it can be made more broadly. The left is massively publicly funded. All of those NGOs, all of the nonprofits, all of the, you know, and then the institutions themselves, once captured, that are fully, fully public, right? The, the left is largely publicly funded with taxpayer money. Maybe there was some kind of parity back when the right was essentially funded by big business. Now the big business also funds the left. There is no parity whatsoever between the right and left in this country where you have like a few conservative donors, you know, funding the Heritage Foundation and some, you know, think tanks and, you know, interesting conferences or whatever. Um, and then this entire machine that is pub uh, funded with taxpayer money to the tune of trillions of dollars. So that I think is something that the right really needs to, to look at. Um, both, I think Ben said it very well, stopping the flow of public funds to what are essentially our domestic enemies. Um, and then uh, seeing what positive we can do, how to use, um, the, how, to, how to fund useful uh, entities and institutions on the right. Um, Oren McIntyre, I think, has has written and spoken extensively about the need for patronage on the right. Um, I think he's exactly right. And then just one final sort of uh, frustrated point. Sure would have been nice to have this budget discussion if Mitch McConnell hadn't handed the these levers for negotiation um, over to Democrats. In, in the last budget, it sure would be nice to actually have this this negotiation with the House actually being sat and the Republican House being sat. But unfortunately, the leader of our party literally handed over um, any kind of leverage that the House Republicans will have over these issues for this this upcoming year. So uh, 
great, great job to Mitch on that one. So I, I don't have a ton to add. I'm happy that Ben is shining a spotlight on this. I, I think it is proper to view this as kind of the federal version. Um, this will tie into my next segment as well. It's kind of a federal version of what is happening at the state level, not just in Florida, although that's a good example, but in many other states as well. If I could just throw like one other data point into the mix there. You know, I mean, obviously, the fact that the federal government spends a ton of money on a ton of stupid crap is not exactly kind of a, a new revelation. I mean, they're using it, I think, for kind of different causes now, perhaps, than they used it 20, 30 years ago. Um, but to kind, to kind of preview where I'm going to go in the next time, it's it's also corporate America. I, I, I mean, uh, you know, our friend Arthur Millick at, at Claremont's uh, D.C. operation recently um, oversaw a report that showed that I think the total corporate America donations to Black Lives Matter in the aftermath of the George Floyd riots is like $82.9 billion, if I have the number correctly. But Emily, I want to save you some time as well. I was going to say a lot of what I have to say about this, I actually think is going to overlap really well with what you talk about next, Josh. Um, I, I would add quickly so, just some extra flavoring. Um, when Kevin Roberts came on Federalist Radio Hour recently, um, basically I asked him, you know, I said, my experience is that the conservative donor class is actually not that opposed to what, for instance, Ron DeSantis has done with Disney is actually not that opposed to starting a new kind of economic agenda to starting. Um, uh, and I think probably the person who marries all of these priorities best is Russ Vogt when he talks about, and Chip Roy, when he talks about the fact that you can do a budget that puts us on a better path um, you know, in, in terms of fiscal soundness, but also responsible government that can curb the scope of the federal government on small issues um, like gas stoves uh, by cutting down the size of the EPA and the scope of the EPA and can help us, you know, not raid entitlement funds. And I honestly think when you start taking that stuff to this current class of conservative donors, a lot of those people uh, that may have been bankrolling uh, prior members and groups um, might be bankrolling Dems now, to be frank, because uh, per the semaphore report uh, that said, you know, some billionaire is some anonymous billionaire is, is hesitant to support DeSantis now is putting the brakes on him because he's banning books. Um, I mean, it's just perfect. Like it, it just tells you everything you need to know. So I think you can make that case, um, to donors and, and not lose any money. I think you can make that case in a budget and, uh, not have a problem either. So I'll kick it back over to you, Josh. Yeah. And the parallels there are pretty stark, right? So, I mean, Russ Vogt had this great piece for Newsweek just a couple months ago, basically saying that Republicans cannot rerun the same old spending fight playbook and actually get in the weeds, exactly what Ben is, is exposing here when it comes to kind of defunding the various woke stuff. So, all right, so let's transition a little bit here. So I want to talk about corporate America. And there are kind of two ongoing fights that I hope to shine a spotlight on, one of them being Bud Light, one of them being the Walt Disney Company. So the Bud Light story is a pretty remarkable organic kind of grassroots pushback. So, um, you know, I was off last week from the show. My understanding is that we have not really fully covered the Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney kerfuffle thus far. So long story short, around the time of the NCAA college uh, March Madness Final Four, a couple of weeks ago, um, Bud Light in, in 
an absolutely asinine and boneheaded decision. That's the anodyne explanation. The more pernicious and perhaps likely explanation is that they were trying to kind of force a civilizational and cultural agenda down the throats of a consumer base that was hostile to it. They Anyway, they decided to partner with transgender activist Dylan Mulvaney, who recently had an interview with none, none other than Joe Biden himself uh, to celebrate uh, Mr. Mulvaney's, quote, 365 days of girlhood. Uh, Mulvaney, of course, is a biological male. The re reaction to this stunt was swift, and it has generally been fierce. Um, as of the time we are talking, uh, Anheuser Bush, I should say, has lost. Uh, I don't have the exact data, but like last time I checked, roughly four and a half to five billion dollars in its market cap, which is no small sum even for a company of that stature. The CEO of Anheuser Busch, in what looked like a hostage crisis letter of sorts, wrote a fairly mealy mouthed missive unto the world last week. Um, I, I say mealy mouthed because it was. It looked like it was the kind of thing that Chat GPT might have been able to spit out using an AI program. But the mere fact that the CEO felt the need, felt compelled to produce this letter, I think evinces that they are hurting. And there's tons of anecdotal evidence for this. John Rich, the country music star, was making the rounds on media recently, talking about how his popular bar, the Redneck Riviera in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, is stopping the purchasing of Bud Light, which is formerly their best-selling beer, because the customers do not want it. On a personal anecdotal note, I can tell you I've had any number of largely apolitical friends who have texted me. My childhood buddy, Robbie, I've known him since we were four years old. Texting me, he goes, Josh, I've been drinking Bud Light since I was in college. I'm done. I'm literally not going back. So nonetheless, um, you have had some even on our side, and Donald Trump Jr. is a good example of this, who are basically trying to call off the attack dogs, saying that no, um, Anheuser Bush donates a much more money to the Republican Party and uh, I guess uh, arguably right of center causes than most corporations do. So uh, it's time to just call this off. You know, that was nice for a little while. Just stop doing it. Similar, on a similar note, um, there is, has been a, a renewal of Ron DeSantis' now long-standing fight against the Walt Disney Company. This fight, of course, goes back to Disney's opposition to Florida's common sense parental rights and education bill that would proscribe the teaching of, of sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. Walt Disney Company came out emphatically on the side of, of groomers and would-be pedophiles. I, don't, I do not think that is, is an exaggeration to say that. And the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was a 1967-era creation, uh, which would disproportion which disproportionately treated Disney relative to all the all the corporations in Florida, the Florida legislature basically got rid of that. But Disney tried to get around that with a last-second kind of legal maneuver back in a board meeting where they signed a development agreement back in February. It was a last-minute thing. Probably fails elementary elements of contract law. Actually, contract law 101. I hope to have an article out on this in the not-so-distant future. Anyway, some, even on our side, are saying that DeSantis is overstepping here. So I saw Frank Luntz, the venerable Republican pollster, who tweeted out, you know, uh, conservatives don't like it when politicians wield power to pursue a cultural vendetta, things like this. And my short answer to people like Don Jr. and Frank Luntz is, no, you are wrong. Corporate America, that's at this point, as we tease in the last segment with that $82.9 billion donation to Black Lives Matter statistic, is increasingly the enemy of the American way of life and the American people. And we absolutely should and must be getting our hands dirty and treating them as such. There is nothing wrong with, with consumer boycotts. There is absolutely nothing wrong with, in the case of the Walt Disney Company here in Florida, with punishing an enemy of the American way of life within the confines of the rule of law, especially when, as the case may be here with Disney, 
the uh, the punishment merely takes the form of treating them equally to every other corporation with no kind of special extra legal favor. So I'll, I'll throw it open on that note, but the Bud Light Disney stuff is a lot of good fodder here for discussion, I think. Sure. So um, a, a number of, of points. One, uh, there actually is an alternative here, right? Coors is famously um, is, is run by a big conservative donor. Um, there are and, and there are presumably other beers that are simply not in the woke game, as obviously as Bud Light um, has been. In many cases, there are no like this kind of grassroots um, movement, which I support, um, wouldn't have worked because there isn't like, for example, there's no major American bank that hasn't donated to Black Lives Matter, right? So like, a lot of times there isn't a market mechanism for, for consumers punishing companies for their woke stances, because simply all of the major players in a market, even though they, they may not individually have monopolistic market share, they have a kind of cultural monopoly in terms of, of the political perspective that makes it impossible for the consumer to actually punish one particular brand over another for taking a particular woke stance. So that mechanism doesn't exist everywhere, but it does here. Um, and, and so the second point is, um, you know, the, Corporations often do this because they are interested in either ESG or other nonprofit scores um, that then are taken into account uh, in terms of investment or ability to, to uh, get venture capital uh, money and and or or to be able to, to finance a loan through a bank, um, depending on what you want that loan for. Right. So there are a lot of these financial mechanisms, big financial mechanisms that do weigh in favor of companies behaving like this, even when their customers clearly reject it. Um, at the end of the day, all of that stuff, the ESG stuff and, and many other uh, sort of woke attendums of, of, of um, the corporate world today do ultimately rest on that fake economy does ultimately rely on the real economy, right? In other words, somebody has to actually make money, make a product and sell it at the end of the day in order for there to be enough excess wealth to uh, you know hold uh, to hire all of the, the people like this um, prototypical a woman who made this this uh, sort of uh, that high that this sent Mulvaney these these beers right. Um, her job may be sort of part of this BS woke economy, but at the end of the day, if you don't sell any beers, you can't pay that person, right? So um, there is somewhere in here some kind of hard limit that's being hit. Um, and then finally, the culture war is not a distraction. Right. People cover this story as though it's a total distraction. I understand why, because, you know, there's some silly stuff there's like Kid Rock out there, like shooting beers or whatever it is he's doing. Right. Um, there, there's some silly elements and performative elements to it. But at the end of the day, it is just as important as as the economy. Um, and and Frank Lenz, to develop on what Josh said, is totally wrong. I mean, there has been a total collapse in uh, and this is a Pew poll, Pew Research Center poll, total collapse in Republican opinion of banks, financial institutions, large corporations and tech companies, all of which were well above water and had more than 50 percent approval among Republicans, all of which have totally collapsed into the 30s and even the 20s in terms of the percentage of people who think of them as having a positive effect on the country. So I, I think Frank Lance is totally wrong there. I'll just be very brief and because uh, I agree with everything that's been said, share an anecdote I used to find very amusing about the head of Urban Outfitters in the aughts, who was a huge opponent of traditional marriage, a uh, supporter of traditional marriage and the fight over Prop 8 in California back in the day. I used to find it hilarious that he was kind of owning the libs by taking their money, um, selling them you know, pro LGBT shirts, taking their money 
and using it to to donate to anti-LGBT causes. That's not funny at all. Uh, as I've aged, I, I don't find that funny at all. I actually find that a great example of what we're seeing from Bud Light, and that is the best rebuttal I can think of to Don Jr. They use that as advertising, right? They use that to mask bad things and promote bad things. They care about money at the end of the day. They don't care about anything other than money. And that's not funny anymore because we've seen how quickly it can change the world. Um, it does really matter. It's not just selling t-shirts and taking that money and giving it to Republicans or whomever else. Um, it's changing the culture and the, the giant game um, as they see it. Yeah, just really briefly, it just makes total rational sense that you would not give special privileges to those who hate your guts and want to undermine your entire agenda. Uh, and then obviously, when it comes to companies, the only thing that companies care about at the end of the day, at least if they want to survive for a long time, is obviously their value and their bottom line. And so what this shows is that when they do face a hit to their brand value, tangible or intangible, and or their market cap, that is how you get a company to respond and to see us engaging in what is a culture war that all of our institutions are engaged in. So the notion that there's some retributive uh, vendetta that's being held out there is simply not the case. The American people are the ones being victimized by a culture war. And so it's incumbent, obviously, upon the representatives of those Americans to actually fight back. Uh, it's just basic common sense. And the only thing I'll say is this is such a ham-handed effort by Bud Light. You know, with Colin Kaepernick and Nike, it seems like Nike actually did find an economic benefit to it. But in this case, uh, Bud Light totally miscalculated. So uh, shame on them, but it's good that they miscalculated. They paid a price for it. In an amusing and uh, pretty detailed interview with Tucker Carlson, exhaustive interview with Tucker Carlson, Elon Musk, um, this is definitely a jarring transition, uh, but in some ways it's really not because Elon Musk talked about how he plans actually now to launch a rival to ChatGPT, which is basically backed by Microsoft. Elon Musk was uh, early, was involved in ChatGPT pretty early with OpenAI. He criticized it. He said, quote, it's training the AI to lie. It's now, quote, closed source. It's now, quote, for profit and, quote, closely aligned with Microsoft. He said, quote, I'm going to start something which I call truth GPT or a maximum truth seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. He said truth GPT, quote, might be the best path to safety. That would be, quote, unlikely to annihilate humans. It's simply starting late, but I will try to create a third option. So. Third option, um, the, the third way, the proverbial third way comes in there um, when you have something like ChatGPT very obviously being trained intentionally, not just to have the normal biases of sinful human beings, but to have uh, political, partisan, ideological biases. So, so it's not just the biases um, that come with a human trying to obtain objectivity and neutrality and truth, uh, which we know is an impossible standard, but also to um, be ideological and partisan in that pursuit in one direction rather than representing the balance of, of human perspectives. This is obviously a hugely consequential question. I think people are starting to realize that 
the more quickly AI is being integrated, generative AI is being integrated into products, the more quickly average consumers are at risk for hacking or at risk for the sexual assaults we've seen. I call them sexual assaults. I, had, I don't see a lot of other people say that being perpetrated on children um, via these platforms like Snapchat, which allows you, uh, which in, in an experiment, for instance, it thought it was talking to a 13 year old and told them how to lose their virginity. Um, that's a sexual assault. So just it's, it's happening really quickly. And I think it's very, uh, good to hear that Musk actually has, I think a humble perspective on what seeking truth looks like. Um, it's kind of a parallel to what he did with Twitter in some ways. And so let's cross our fingers and, and hope that it works, uh, or hope that it's, it's a, the best possible version of all of this. He signed a letter that I actually send as well with much, much, much more high profile people than me, a whole bunch of people from the tech space saying we need to, um, remove like tools like chat GPT from public access right now, because they're just too dangerous. Um, libertarians were really upset about that, but they won't be upset if all of their stuff gets hacked um, in ways that they can't even conceive of right now. I think it's important to keep innovation alive, but you know, on that note, uh, I'll open it up to the rest of you to see what you think about Elon potentially starting a rival to the ultra popular chat GPT. I, I mean, I don't have a ton of thoughts on this. It's kind of, I was kind of waiting for one of my esteemed co-panelists to to hop in first. I, I have been a little late to the whole chat GPT AI thing. I've spent probably a grand total of maybe two or three minutes on chat GPT. I, 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 for, based on everything that I've read about it, I, I definitely agree with kind of the overarching premise that this thing is extremely dangerous. Um, you know, I mean, uh, what what does it do to, to someone who writes columns, who writes books? I mean, like, do you even have to write columns anymore? I mean, can you just like, can, I mean, can can someone with a voluminous enough track record literally just put into this program, like write my next book for me? I, I mean, like there is all sorts of like incredibly thorny moral and ethical issues that are that are raised from things like that. Um, I, 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 I guess because I, I don't have like deeply developed thoughts on what Elon could possibly do about this, I'll, t I'll, t I'll just take in like a slightly different direction, which is kind of just a poignant reminder, I think. And this, this I think, is, would be a kind of foundational difference between conservatives, especially kind of Nat Connie, Burkean conservatives, and kind of our more classical liberal libertarian brethren. It, it kind of shines a spotlight on the idea that, you know, uh, all of creative destruction, all of market forces, all of technology and so forth really is not necessarily for the better. And that does not mean, of course, that we are Luddites, that we, that we kind of eschew technology, that we hate it, but, it, but rather it necessarily means that technology, just like the market, just like, as I have argued, constitutional interpretation, just like any other thing in society can not necessarily be a thing unto itself. Rather, it must necessarily be undergirded by certain kind of anchoring principles and truths and ultimately oriented towards certain ends, um, like uh, human flourishing, of course, and substantive justice, things like that. So the the extent to which chat GPT fundamentally undermines those ends, I think it is wholly, wholly appropriate to rein it in or potentially excise it um, from society to court. Um, sure. So, I mean, I, I think Josh's point about, you know, sort of an economic level losing jobs, right, whether they're columnists or not. Um, and in fact, actually, I, I, I think the, the more interesting thing there will be um, that it kind of the opposite, the, the way we've been talking about it, which is that, oh, like, 
easily automated jobs. So, you know, truck drivers will lose their jobs because we'll have uh, AI driver ability to to, to um, navigate the truck without needing a person there. Actually, I think what might happen is the middle tier of, of the middle class might lose their sort of white collar jobs. Um, and, and essentially you will end up with, uh, it'll be cheaper to have somebody flipping your burger directly who isn't a, a machine. Um, so there'll only be jobs sort of at the very high level and the very low level. That's a real possibility. But the next level of what to worry about with this, I think, is the, the human ability to even think or connect um, with each other without it being mediated by, by AI, right? Um, and that, I think, in an atomized, already atomized culture could be a complete disaster in the same way that few people are able to to um, repeat or, or do math, high-level math in their heads anymore because we have access and we rely on calculators and computers to do it for us. We might lose that ability, for example, to communicate with each other where all our emails with our colleagues are written by ChatGPT, right? Our mediation, there might be a, a AI mediation between the ways that we communicate with each other. We are wholly unprepared for those kinds of questions, which of course, uh, uh, you know, cycle us back into questions of the soul, um, of human individuality, the kinds of philosophical and theological questions that our uh, modern world and modern people are wholly unprepared to deal with or answer. So that that's my high level, because I don't have any specific, like Josh, I don't know much about AI as, as a um, technology, but but it doesn't erase, I think, the the real sort of fundamental questions that are raised by this rapid technological advance. Um, and I'm glad that Elon Musk is losing a little bit of his tech utopianism, because I think that's that's a good sign generally for if Silicon Valley was a little more humble about what they do, I think it would be good for the country. Yeah, I think if Elon Musk sees a tech dystopia and is alarmed at us essentially destroying ourselves and humanity in its entirety, then uh, it would pay it a heed his views, even if, by the way, he may have an economic incentive to ultimately be on the other side of this. Although, as we've seen, you know, he put tens of billions of dollars into Twitter, and I'm not sure that that investment is ultimately going to work out unless he's playing some longer game than any of us can appreciate. But I will say, you know, just looking at this uh, sort of like Inez and Josh as, you know, not well steeped in AI technology, you know, this seems like a recipe for put people out of business, get a universal basic income scheme going. Uh, and no one owns anything and let them eat bugs. I mean, that that sort of seems like the trajectory that this goes down. There's obviously you know, ramifications of this well beyond economics. You know, I took note of an article that Jonathan Turley wrote a couple of weeks ago where Chad GPT essentially concocted these allegations that he had sexually harassed people in a fake Washington Post story uh, and it made it into that platform. You can imagine how people's lives could be ruined through fake slander. I mean, sort of an analog to deep fakes, but with chat GPT. So I doubt that we've even come close to thinking through all the potential ramifications, you know, that go well beyond people in a whole variety of industries, including in the knowledge industries, seeing their jobs wrecked by automation on top of obviously people working with their hands and seeing those jobs uh, ultimately go by the wayside. Um, ultimately, it's just so characteristic of human beings that in our zeal to try to perfect things and create these advanced technologies that we would ultimately create the tools that might lead to our own destruction. And of course, these tools are no better than the people creating the inputs behind them. And at the end of the day, that's humanities. So uh, I suspect we're, we, we ought to try more than carefully here. And uh, the longer this podcast goes on, the more I become a Luddite in real time, I think.
<laughs> we'll, we'll move on to final thoughts and I can just address that quickly and say, you know, AI was not really on my radar much um, and tech really wasn't on my radar much until probably the Trump era when it became very clear that every political issue is imbued um, with the tech crisis and it, it just informs absolutely everything we talk about and uh, AI is not something that I've ever especially generative AI I can't code I don't really you know spend a lot of time with tech people um, but in the conversations I have had with tech people uh, since being sort of caught up to speed on some of this it's it's terrifying and this is not talking to simply alarmists uh, this is looking at the information yourself and making a judgment uh, where we're not well prepared for it and uh, I think we will be living in a different world because of generative AI uh, one year from now let alone five years but just one year from now I think it'll it'll be things will be very different because of this and we don't have a solution to to hyper novelty we don't even have a broad uh, kind of intellectual framework consensus framework to deal with the question of hyper novelty and it's probably the, the single most important word in politics right now uh, so I would just put that out there and one tiny thing I would add to our first segment is that um, Snowden and well, Snowden in particular, uh, there were other channels for leaking that had been kind of exhausted by the time he got around to leaking what he did. And we may have disagreements on this, um, but it, it is so it is different in that respect from what we know now. That said, what we know now, I still think is incredibly weird. I'm not going to go out on any conspiratorial limbs, but I do want to say I think it is incredibly weird and strange what we know about this leak so far um so uh, I'll, I'll reserve judgment until we know more in either direction um but i i just still think the entire situation is incredibly bizarre yeah just to just to add on to that yeah if you were trying to make the case that you know th this guy is a patsy there's obviously a lot of warning signs that you could look to it's also really striking how this leaker was discovered so quickly Yet, obviously, as many commentators have noted, you know, whether it's the pipe bombers around January 6th uh, or a whole slew of other suspects, um, the national security apparatus seems to have a, a really hard time finding them. So the notion that this person was brought to justice almost immediately and that it was someone who would really strains credulity to believe that they could have obtained access to all of these documents uh, are all really are questions that a curious press would look into, but in this case, the press is completely incurious. And I think that speaks volumes about it. Uh, I would just point out a couple of things for folks' radar uh, that I took note of over the last week. One on the kind of woke capital beat, following up on that segment that we had, uh, Aaron Sabarium had a great expose on Walmart's woke takeover of Arkansas and how in you know what would be perceived to be a red nationalist populist kind of state, Essentially, Walmart has imposed its progressive values using all levers of power that it has locally. So it's worth checking that out and how uh, one company and corporation has essentially molded the character of the politics and basically the civil society within a state where it's obviously rooted. Um, then beyond that, I would say as a matter of catharsis, it's worth checking out some of the clips from the weaponization subcommittees hearing in New York City. Uh, the stories of victims of New York City's uh, effectively pro-criminal policies that have been imposed by progressives uh, were incredibly stirring and compelling stories. And then actually seeing uh, Democrats called out to their faces 
uh, in what can only be described as kind of an unruly hearing, but very characteristic of New York, uh, very cathartic to see uh, politicians actually called out, especially when they were calling these victims and their families essentially political props. Uh, the victims were having none of that worth checking out. Yeah, on the on the New York City beat, I think we'd be remiss not to mention the civil case against Trump uh, that was brought last week by Letitia James. Um, Trump was deposed here in Manhattan um, and apparently did talk as opposed to, to taking the fifth. Um, he's, he put out a typically Trumpian statement about how he's very proud of his very extremely successful companies and looks forward to educating Letitia James on how successful his companies are. All, all that aside, it, it's worth pointing out, uh, you know, I, I realize we talk about this every week and, um, you know, it, it, it can get repetitive, but uh, we had both Letitia James and D.A. Bragg both run on getting Trump, a specific person, right? So both the criminal cases against him and the criminal charges against him here and the civil charges against him here were very, very clearly politically, they both decided, they both openly said, we're going to use the justice system to prosecute this particular guy because we don't like him politically. That is worth noting, I think, even though, you know, I guess everybody who listens to this podcast knows, knows, quote unquote, what time it is. They, they understand that this is this is just the state of the American justice system. Nevertheless, I think it would be remiss not to point it out that that um, very clearly we have admitted political targeting using the, the justice system, both criminal and civil. So a quick point on our lattermost segment on AI. I kind of had a memory rejiggered while we were talking about it of a recent headline that I saw in some newsletter about how property values in the metaverse, speaking of things that I have literally never dabbled in, I could barely even tell you what the metaverse is, but I saw a headline about how property values in the metaverse have been plummeting. Um, and apparently that technology has not been taking off perhaps as quickly as the starry-eyed utopian technologists in Silicon Valley thought it might. So between that and kind of this uh, nascent uh, kind of Elon Musk-driven slight gentle pushback against the excesses of AI technology, perhaps we have actually reached some sort of inflection point when it comes to this kind of um, notion that unvarnished technological change is, is ipso facto good. So Definitely a trend to keep an eye on. Um, I I, I want to briefly go back to something that Ben mentioned here, which is this stark, stark contrast between how the national security state immediately found this 21-year-old dude hiding out in his mom's basement in rural Massachusetts and various other leaks that we have not gone to the bottom to. And I have a leak in mind that we have not gone to the bottom to. That, of course, would be the Supreme Court leaker from the Dobbs opinion, which we literally have not gotten to the bottom to. Ben wrote a great piece about this for, for us at Newsweek, actually, a few months ago. And the most astonishing thing about the Supreme Court leak and the court's purported inability, I continue to believe that the court knows exactly who it was. I think Chief Justice Roberts actually knows exactly who it was as well. But if you take them at their word, the the part that is almost impossible to reconcile about their purported inability to discover who the leaker is, is that, as I've said time and time again since this happened now almost a year ago, the sample size of possible people who could have done it is under 100. I, I mean, generously speaking, 50, 60, 70 people, if you include all the clerks, the clerk spouses, some janitors, whatever, it's literally under 100 people. So you're going to tell me that they couldn't find out who it was after, what, seven, eight, nine months, however long the formal investigation was, and then this dude, Jack Teixeira, they found within like 24 hours out of a, out of a sample size of 
350 million or whatever. I mean, give me a break. It doesn't pass the laugh test. And I, I'm sorry, that is not conspiracy theory. That is not tinfoil hat stuff. That is just looking at what is happening before our eyes and calling it like it is, I think. Well, on that note, let it be uh, let it be written that I am still terrified of the metaverse. Uh, but on behalf of <laughs> Inez, Ben, Josh, and myself, uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.